Welcome to Commonplace Church. My name is Corey Costa. I am the associate pastor here today. I have the honor and privilege of teaching through the Bible. And uh, really glad to be here. If you're visiting, had a friend invite you out. Thank you so much for coming out today. Uh, as Ken shared, we will be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, talking through what it means to follow Jesus um, with our doctrine, with our culture and community, all of these different things. And so today, uh, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of justification, and more specifically as followers of Jesus. And wherever you find yourself today, we just want to welcome you. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, as followers of Jesus, what we are justified by, first of all, and then also what we're justified for. And so we see the process of justification, but also the purpose of justification. And so to do this, we'll look to the scriptures, and there's a few key quotes I'm really going to be... Uh, leaning heavily on today from, from different authors and, and theologians from past and present that I think will be helpful in defining and understanding justification. And uh, before we do that, yesterday, uh, Talia, my wife, and I watched a, a documentary on uh, Jason Kelsey. He's the center for Philadelphia Eagles, and it, it followed the last season, uh, the 2022 to 23 football season, and he was, you know, uh, just kind of grappling with um, the physical toll that football has taken on his body, and, and he was working through those things, and he's got two young daughters at home and his wife at home, and they had a third one on the way, and so, you know, he was wrestling with the decisions of, do I play another season? How much longer can I do this? I, I believe he said at, at the time of the filming, he was 35 years old, and he had been through like seven surgeries and had... Uh, at least some uh, early onset arthritis in virtually like every lamb or joint in his body at 35 years old and, and, and just kind of reckoning with that. And he has a lot of conversations throughout the documentary with friends or other football players who had retired and made that hard decision because your life becomes all about this one thing. So you really don't want to stop, although you see, you know, the, the risks and the sacrifices you're taking. And one of the conversations, he's, he's speaking with a friend of his, and he's, again, he's talking about that, I'm 35 now, all these different things, and, you know, I want to be able to be physically able to interact with my kids as I get older, and my grandkids when they come. And, you know, he talks about it, and then he also kind of says, as he's struggling with it, he, he, he kind of mentions, you know, if that time comes and I'm, I'm unable to move around, you know, everything I got to do now, it was, it was a good trade-off. You know, at least I got this time on the field. And as he said that, he, he kind of believed it, but watching it kind of felt like, man, like he's kind of trying to justify his decision. It's a hard decision. And he's put all of his worth and purpose into this one thing, and who is he without that thing? And we could watch him grappling. And, you know, first world problems, this guy's contract must be worth millions and millions of dollars. He's got a beautiful family at home, a third daughter on the way. He ends up going to the Super Bowl, plays against his brother in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's a beautiful story. So I'm not sure how sorry you might necessarily feel. But what I did recognize was even with all of that, right, the family value, the career value, the monetary value of his contract, the success, all of those things, he still found himself trying to justify his own existence. And it got me thinking about how often we tend to do that ourselves. And justification in the Bible 
it's a little bit different than how we would use the term today, but it, it made me realize how often we try to do the same thing in just justifying our worth, justifying our decisions, justifying the reasons we do the things we do and the reasons we are the way that we are, and even trying to justify to our friends, our spouses, our coworkers that we're worthwhile, that we're worth having around, that we're worth our paycheck, whatever it might be. And one of the things that I think is beautiful about being justified by faith, which is what we're going to talk about, is that it actually frees us from all of that. We're, we're, we're no longer in charge of justifying ourselves, of proving ourselves worthwhile. Jesus has already declared that, and that's the beautiful doctrine that we're going to talk about today. And before we do that, I do want to take just a few minutes to set the scene and provide some context as far as Galatians goes and uh, why Paul is bringing this up in his letter to the churches of Galatia and what this is all in reference to. Uh, so Paul had written this letter to contend for the gospel message, the message of the gospel of, of God saving sinners through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone was becoming somewhat distorted at these churches. Paul was hearing about this and it was troubling him. And this good news of God's kingdom, right, that rules and reigns in the hearts of those who repent of their sin and believe in his only son Jesus as Lord by placing their faith and trust in his life, that message uh, through Paul, God had made it clear that not only Jewish people who followed the Mosaic law, but all people from all nations and all backgrounds can be reconciled to God. And you can find these promises in the Old Testament. This wasn't a new thing, but in this particular moment in history, Paul was, as what Jesus describes, um, his chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and beyond. So, one thing that Paul was kind of rooting out or trying to make clear was that works of the law, right, that Mosaic law, namely things like circumcision, ceremonial food laws, some things we've talked about the last few weeks, uh, were not required to be saved. And this had been an ongoing issue at this time in the church. We see in different letters of the New Testament as well as the book of Acts where uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile or non-Jewish Christians were honestly just trying to sort out how it was that they were to live before God. And so we saw one of the ways this issue cropped up in last week's passage, where Paul publicly confronts and corrects Peter, one of the primary disciples, apostles of Jesus, regarding what looked to be like Peter's inconsistent behavior. Peter was eating and living as the Gentiles when he was in their presence, yet when Jewish Christians arrived on the scene, he withdrew from the Gentiles and began eating and living as the Jewish Christians did. And so not only was his doctrine inconsistent, but his, his conduct as a part of the culture that Jesus was building was inconsistent as well. So Paul's point is this to the Galatians and to all of us as well. It doesn't matter where, what your origins are. For them, if you were Jewish or non-Jewish, the reality is that Jesus fulfilled that law on our behalf, or he didn't. It, it, there's no in-between. So Paul says, still speaking to Peter in the beginning of this passage, yes, we are Jews by birth. We are not Gentiles, but there's no longer a distinction between us. We're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Paul goes on to say that no one will be justified by works of the law. That's an absolute statement. So he was making it clear. It's not about if you were raised Jewish or not, or if you follow the Mosaic law or not. We're all justified by our faith. And so Gentiles were known by Jewish people as sinners. It's a strange way to refer to somebody, but that's just kind of, that's just kind of how they spoke. So the rebuttal from them likely would have been if, you know, if, if, 
We choose to be justified in Christ instead of the law, like the Gentiles. Wouldn't that make us sinners? So that's kind of the rebuttal. And, and Paul's point is, well, yes, we're, we're all sinners. Whether we follow ceremonial food laws or not, whether we follow circumcision or not, that's Paul's point, is that we all need Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else can save us, and nothing additional that we put on top saves us any further. It was always faith, right? Circumcision was a covenantal act of faith, as were sacrifices, as were ceremonial food laws. Following the Mosaic law was all an act of faith before God. And the next rebuttal that comes in in this passage is, is you know, well, if, if that's the case, then wouldn't that make Christ himself a, a minister of sin if, if, if we're all sinners? And Paul's clear. He says, certainly not, right? Jesus is the one who actually followed the law perfectly. That's part of what makes him the Messiah. And in terms of what we're speaking about today, it's that Jesus is not only just, but he's the justifier of all who come to him because they receive his work as their own. It isn't that sin is no longer a big deal. It's not that sin is ignored. It's that Jesus adequately dealt with sin. So what Paul is suggesting really was radical. And it wasn't himself, right? It was through, resol- uh, re- sorry, through direct revelation of Jesus. But it was radical because hundreds and hundreds of years of, of covenantal requirements to a relationship with God had been fulfilled by something greater or someone greater. Not by Paul's words, but by Jesus' work. The law had been fulfilled by somebody else. We're no longer under it. We've been set free from it. And that's why freedom is such a big theme in the book of Galatians as well, because we've been set free. And not free to do whatever we want, but free from the burden of trying to earn God's approval when it's already been gifted to us through Christ. We're free from trying to justify our own existence. And that brings us to justification. Simply put, I think the best way to put it is that justification is the act of God in which sinners are counted as or declared righteous by God. And not by their own righteousness, but instead by accepting and receiving Jesus' righteousness as their own. So that's why Paul says we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Our justification is by faith. It's not our work but rather Jesus' work, and that's where faith comes into play. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's a quote from Paul David Tripp's book, uh, Do We Believe, uh, that uh, I think is really helpful for what is our role in our justification? Is Is it God? Is it us? How does this work? And here's the quote. He says, we need to receive, accept, and rest in Christ and his righteousness as the sole means of our justification always remembering that even our ability to believe is not from us, but is a gift of God to us. So we're reminded that our justification by faith, even then, is not an act of our own good deeds, but rather an act of God on our behalf. It doesn't mean we're completely passive in the process. Uh, Saving faith is an active faith, right? We're active. But but take a look at the actions that, that Tripp is calling on us to do, to receive to accept, and to rest. And now in our own desires to self-justify and earn our favor before God and work for it, this can feel like a lot of work to actually just receive, accept, and rest. But all three of those actions, ultimately they're not our work, but rather an embracing of Jesus' work as our own. 
his righteousness as our own. So why is this good news then? It's because we can't save ourselves. If any of us could stand before God without an iota of sin combined with a perfect adherence to his perfect and just moral law, then yeah, we could be self-justified. But we all know that isn't true. Because it isn't simply about avoiding doing things we consider wrong or bad or making sure we have enough good things to outweigh the bad things. Because sin is often simply just missing the mark. God is holy and just and perfect. And because of sin, not just our own individual sins, but the all-encompassing maladaptation of God's creation that is sin as a, as a collective problem, we're separated from God because of it. We can't earn our way back. So the good news is that we don't have to achieve and white knuckle and grind our way to our own righteousness. One, because we couldn't anyway, but two, because God isn't, isn't asking us to do that. Instead, we receive, accept, and rest in Christ's righteousness on our behalf. That's what it means to be in Christ, that we're gifted with his perfect righteousness and therefore justified. Not justified by our work, but by our faith in his. And so some of us run into a problem there in conversations I've had with people and even, even struggles I've had you know, this, this question of if, if I've received Christ's perfect righteousness, it's been gifted to me, right? I've been clothed in it. Why does it feel like my life doesn't reflect that? Why does it feel like my church doesn't reflect that? Why does the doctrine and the culture feel so far apart? And that could be for a number of reasons. But, but one, I believe, is that it can be our own misunderstanding of what it means to be justified. Justification, right? It's the act in which God declares us righteous through Christ's righteousness. Justification is an immediate act, but on the other hand, it's not the act in which God makes us righteous. That's sanctification. And sanctification is a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. If you're familiar with the story in uh, Gospel of Luke, the, the prodigal son, who comes running home with this list of things and instead uh, the father goes running to him and puts a robe on him. He's not deserving of that robe. He didn't earn that robe, but he gets that robe. And then he spends the rest of his life growing into the person who belongs in that robe. And that's what our sanctification is. God says, you're already, you're already clean in my eyes and now I'm gonna make you the person that I've already declared you to be. But that's a lifelong process. So when we're justified, our standing before God is immediately switched we exchange our position of unjust and separated from God to Jesus' position of justified and reconciled to God. But as all of us who have been following Jesus can attest to, our sins don't just go away. Justification doesn't instantly take them away. But what it does is it takes away the penalty. Martin Luther talks about this in uh, his commentary on Galatians. He says this, he says, to give a short definition of a Christian a Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer chalks sin because of his faith in Christ. This doctrine brings comfort to consciences in serious trouble. When a person is a Christian, he is above law and sin. When the law accuses him and sin wants to drive the wits out of him, a Christian looks to Christ. A Christian is free. He has no master except Christ. He says a Christian is greater than the whole world. 
And not in an ego way, like, wow, I'm better than anybody. It's that whatever the world has to throw at you because you're in Christ, you're above those things. And look at that. When the law accuses and sin wants to drive out, a Christian looks not to his own week. Well, how did I do this week? What, what good deeds can I line up to challenge those accusations against me? What can I look to? It's not that. It's I look to Christ. I look to the cross. I look to the finished work on my behalf. So a Christian is not somebody who has no sin. A Christian is simply somebody who is no longer under the penalty of sin. I think that's an important distinction to make. Otherwise, we start thinking we're doing something wrong or maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I'm not truly justified. I think that can be a dangerous place that we get, we get trapped in. And look, the consequences of sin remain in this life, absolutely. But the separation, the divide that was caused by sin has been closed. Jesus has bridged that gap. So the reason, you know, Paul uh, speaks in this way to Peter right last week because Peter was acting in a way that reinforced that divide. So you can understand the passion that Paul was speaking with. And, you know, as we, as we look at these things, as we look at um, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, I think one of the most popular verses that I've found is, is kind of used and referenced is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul also says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is true, right? This is what we've been talking about. We're saved by grace. We're justified through faith, completely apart from our works. So that's the process of justification. That's what we're justified by. But if we stop there, we tend to miss the purpose of justification. We know how, but what have we been justified for? And what we see is that we've been justified for purpose. There's a, there's a purpose. God did it on purpose. So why does God save us? I mean, really, we, we debate all the time in the church, right? The mechanism behind it, the great exchange, the transaction of our sins placed upon Jesus and his righteousness placed upon us, the process, the functionality, right? We know what we're saved from, our sin and separation. We know who we're saved by, Jesus. We even know how we're saved, by grace through faith. But why? Why are we saved? I think an even important, another important question is, is what are we saved for? So if we go back to that, that key passage in Ephesians chapter 2, right, 8 and 9, those are very popular verses. But if you, if you go back and you keep reading, right, he said, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse doesn't always get the same amount of attention as the ones before it, and I think we miss the vast scope of the gospel message when we miss this. Because first, this verse explains why God saves us. Because God loves us. Because he delights in us. He is pursuing us. He carefully and thoughtfully created us. We're his workmanship. That can be translated masterpiece. We are God's pinnacle of creation. And broken as we may be, we're created for more. Um, what is it? Switchfoot has, has that one right, you know? We're meant to live for so much more. Um, and, and some of us are so bogged down in our sinfulness that we just, we miss that. We're so caught up in sin management that, that we miss that we're actually meant to live for more. And, you know, Switchfoot references might be a little corny, and that's one thing. But for us to shrug off 
that reality is to deny or even reject God's purpose for justification. We're not justified by faith in order to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. Another thing that documentary was reminding me of, the Jason Kelsey one I was watching, watching replays of games that already happened, so you already know how they're going to end. You know, I, I know that, you know, they make it to the Super Bowl, but I'm watching and I'm still getting very invested. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting sucked into it. And I'm thinking back and I'm like, well, I know, you know, I know that he wins, but I'm, I'm still invested. And that's the Christian life. We know the ending, right? We have the whole Bible. We, we know Jesus is coming back and he's going to be victorious. We already have the ending, so it could be easy to rest on that, right? Well, everything's gonna be all good. I'll just wait till Jesus gets back. But no, we stay invested. Even though we know how, how the game's gonna play out, we know what's going to happen. We stay invested. We play our part. And I think to see justification by faith as well, you know, say one prayer one time, maybe I'll even wait until my deathbed if I have that luxury, and then, you know, I'll believe a statement and go to heaven. I, that's not what we're justified for. We're, we're not justified only for entry into heaven, but for new life here on earth right now. We're justified on purpose with a given purpose. So we're justified by faith, yes, but we're justified for good works. Not to earn God's favor because we already have it in Christ, right? We're free. We have the proverbial day off from work, you know? So how do we want to spend that time? Living for God, being ambassadors of reconciliation, sharing the good news of Jesus with other people who are also inundated with trying to earn their way into goodness or moral perfection or simply feeling okay. God created us on purpose, with a purpose, to live in communion with him and with one another and with his creation. And get this, Ephesians 2.10, God prepared it beforehand. It was all set up. You're not an accident on a floating rock. It's, it's not your existence. I've heard it said there might be accidental parents, but there's no accidental people. You're a purposeful creation meant to reflect that purpose to the world around you. And this is what Paul's getting at back in Galatians, verse 19 of chapter two, when he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. We see the purpose there. There's a reason Paul's language is so striking. He says he's dead to the law. He has given up on trying to self-justify. He has given up on trying to earn his own way. He's pronounced the version of himself that tries to earn God's favor through his own works as dead. That's how serious Paul's taking his justification. He says, the law can accuse me all it wants. The world can accuse me all it wants, even Satan himself. And with every accusation, remember, Paul doesn't point to himself and his own good works and his own accomplishments, but he points to the cross. He points to the empty tomb, to the risen Jesus. So he's dead to the law, but he doesn't stop there. He died to the law, not just to let himself off the hook, but rather that he could live a new life with God. So in a sense, the pressure is off of having to try to earn God's acceptance. And since Paul is already accepted, this frees him up to live the life that God has prepared him for, the life of walking in those good works. He's been freed up to do that. And one way he drives this home in this passage, which I believe is vital for each of us to do on our own, is that Paul personalizes Jesus' work on the cross. In my study Bible, I think it put it brilliantly. It says that the cross and the crucifixion is not an impersonal mechanical transaction, 
but it's a personal expression of Christ's love for people as individuals. And this is what Paul speaks to in the next verse, in verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is personal for Paul. There's seven, maybe eight personal pronouns in that verse. And don't get me wrong, because it, I, I could see this. It, it, this isn't a matter of applying, you know, I think today we live in a very individualistic culture, and I understand that. And, and this is not trying to make the scriptures fit that narrative. We always want to yield to what the scriptures say about us, not what we say about the scriptures. That's important. So let's see. What is Paul saying? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. He personalizes this. What happened 2,000 plus years ago didn't only happen to Jesus, it happened to me as well. There are personal, individual implications to the cross. And then Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is a powerful claim, right? But not only that, it can also send us in all different directions if we aren't careful. So starting obviously, Paul was still alive when he wrote this, right? So Christ living in him and Paul no longer living, to some extent, must be figurative and not literal. Paul was still alive, right? It isn't Christ who lives in Christ. It's Christ who lives in Paul, in Corey, in you. He lives in us. And so there is some part of you that is no longer considered alive. And Christ has come to live in that self. So what does that mean? There's this book I've been reading titled You're Only Human by a theologian and professor named uh, Kelly Capick. And there's an entire chapter dedicated to identity in Christ. And a lot of it's actually based on this verse in Galatians. So I was very grateful I was reading it at the same time I was studying this. I don't, I don't see those things as accidents. Uh, but I do just want to spend a few minutes talking about some of my findings and kind of referring back to this passage. Because, you know, this might just be me, but when we hear... I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old me is dead. I think sometimes we can walk away with this fragmented sense of self. Okay, I understand who God is, but who am I in this situation? What aspect of me dies? What aspect of me lives? How does that work? And I think this is the key. It's our sinful flesh that's been put to death. Not our entire created being. It's the, the sinful aspect that's being put to death. Our bodies, minds, and souls have been infected fully, entirely by sin, yes. But they aren't discarded, right? It's not thrown away. Before sin, we're made in God's image. That remains true about us. I was thinking about it kind of like a, a computer with a virus in the sense that I'm not sure if computers still get viruses as they used to, but so you know, when a computer has a virus, nothing loads as it should, right? It doesn't receive information the way it's supposed to. It doesn't transmit information the way it's supposed to. It doesn't operate the way it was created and intended to operate. And the entire system is broken. It needs to be overhauled, not just some quick fixes, not some maintenance to work around the viruses. That doesn't work. It needs a complete overhaul. But even then, take away the virus, it's still a computer. 
It was built and created thoughtfully and carefully to carry out a determined purpose by its creator. And we could say that's a piece of junk and throw it away. Or we could carefully work to root out the viruses in the software and restore it to its original design. And we're not computers, we're not robots, right? But so it is with us being crucified with Christ and Christ living in us. And I was talking about this analogy with Mark this week and he, he reminded me, you know, when it comes to restoring creation to its intended state, who better to do that than the creator himself? Who better than Jesus himself to come in and do that? If there's anyone we can trust to restore creation to its original state, it's the creator. And so this is what happens when we're crucified with Christ and he lives in us because we're created in God's image. And yes, although we have been utterly and overarchingly infected with sin, that is true, we still bear the image of the creator. And so our sinful self, right? The self that insists on its own way, the self that it's feeding its own desire and seeking its own glory, that's the self that goes on the cross with Christ. It's crucified there, it's finished. But our personhood, our, our created nature remains. Capic writes in his book that our identity in Christ isn't something apart from our cultures and backgrounds, but rather his transformation of them as he brings us to himself. We're still living this life, right? I'm still this person and not that person. Paul makes this distinction. My sinful flesh went to the cross. It was crucified with Christ. But the life I now live in the flesh, he says, this continued life in this body, with this personhood, from this culture, with this background, Paul says, I live that life by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because in Paul's words, he loved me and gave himself for me. Again, Paul personalizes this experience. It wasn't just for the world at large in its, in its majesty, but it was for little old Paul in his obscurity and his individual particularity. Christ died for Paul, for me, for you, personally. And if this feels a bit like a millennial self-centric spin on the text, I understand that and I've been working through that myself. Um, <laughs> you know, what it means to, to be in Christ and Paul's claims here and, and, and Christ living in us. I'm really trying to sort out what that means. And so to that point, um, there's a sermon given by Charles Spurgeon in 1867, which is not a very individualistic time. And I shared a link earlier on Church Center. If you have the chance to read the sermon, I definitely recommend it. It's a little heady, but I think it, it, it speaks to this. And I want to pull a quote from Spurgeon in response to Paul's claim of the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. So this is a quote where Spurgeon encourages each of us to put ourselves in Paul's place and apply that language to ourselves. And here's what he says. He says, this is instructive, for it is a distinguishing mark of the Christian religion that it brings out a man's individuality. It does not make us selfish. On the contrary, it cures us of that evil, but still does it manifest in us a selfhood by which we become conscious of our personal individuality in an eminent degree. And then he goes on to say, um, in the nocturnal heavens, there had long been observed bright masses of light. The astronomers called them nebula. They supposed them to be stores of shapeless, chaotic matter until the telescope resolved them into distinct stars. What the telescope did for stars, the religion of Christ, when received into the heart, does for us. So personalizing Jesus' work on the cross, 
our faith in him, our justification from him given to us for good works is not an act of selfishness. Spurgeon is arguing it's exactly what we need to do to cure ourselves of selfishness. Because, you know, a lot of times we talk about self-denial and dying to self, but self-denial itself, it requires a supreme understanding of self, doesn't it? If you don't understand yourself, how would you know which desires to deny and which desires to pursue in Christ? Becoming conscious of our personal individuality in all of the beauty and terror, is, it's vital. How can a sinner repent if they aren't acutely aware of their own sin? It's not a hypothetical question. Make it first person, right? Put your own name in there. Because it's not a business transaction with God, it's personal. So make it personal. Jesus didn't only die because the world had a sin problem, but because you personally have a sin problem. We can't coast on the faith of our parents or our pastors or even our spouses. We are justified through a personal saving faith in Jesus. Jesus loves you and he gave himself for you. Make it personal. When he hung on the cross, it was for us collectively, yes, but it was for you. And when he rose, it was for us, yes, but it was for you. And maybe, maybe you haven't experienced that, and that's okay. Maybe you see yourself the way the astronomers saw stars before the telescope. Right? Think shapeless, chaotic matter is how it was described. Just a happenstance organism trying to survive, right? No distinct function, no distinct meaning, no distinct purpose. Maybe that's how you feel or how you felt. And, you know, at the youth retreat this week, I was, I was struck by um, how many of us, teens and adults, can, can often feel this way. So just as the telescopes made the stars clear, right, allow Jesus to make your life clear to you. Give him access to your heart. Let him see everything. Let him show you personally who you are. Let him show you your sin. Let him show you your absolute need for him. And then let him show you how he made all things right at the cross. Let him show you his love for you, how he gave himself for you, how the life you live is no longer um, because of your own work and, and you're now free to live free because of his grace. And again, don't take my word for it or your moms, or dads, your husband, your wife, the friend who invited you out, don't take their word for it. See for yourself. See your need for him. And in response, see, your mercy, see his mercy and kindness to meet your need in abundance. And maybe instead of us you know, trying to justify our existence or, or prove ourselves worthwhile, maybe instead we should take some time to focus on the pain that leads us to try and self-justify in the first place. And then receive, accept, and rest in Christ's perfect righteousness on our behalf. Because you're, you're justified through faith in Jesus. And whichever side of the spectrum we fall on, whether it's the arrogance found in trying to earn this gift or the shame found in trying to deny this gift because we're unworthy, I, just, I can't accept that. But both of those, are, they're useless here. It's a gift of grace. It's not qualified by our right doing. It's not disqualified by our wrongdoing. But it's to be received, accepted, and rested upon. So that's what it means to be justified. We're justified by our faith, and we're justified so that we would live 
lives of purpose for God. So I just want to take a few minutes to, to pray for us that, that we would receive that gift and that we would we'd find rest in it. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the reminders of, of um, the good news and, and the reality that, that, God, you prepared beforehand good works for us. Um, you, have, you have set purposes for each of our lives personally, Lord God, that the the crucifixion was, was not just a historical reality 2,000 years ago, but it's a personal reality today. Lord God, would you help us to, to lay down our efforts to, to earn your favor, to prove ourselves worthy, to uh, compare ourselves to others, whatever it might be, would you free us from that in, in the justification you offer to us, Lord, that we would receive Christ's righteousness, we would accept his righteousness, and we would find rest in it. Because it, sin was not ignored, sin was not um, made to be no big deal, but instead it was thoroughly dealt with when Jesus fulfilled the law. God, we thank you for sending your son in our place that we can have this freedom. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to use this freedom for your glory. God, and I pray for anyone in this room who, who feels like those stars before the telescope of shapeless chaotic matter, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them and the purpose and plan uh, that you have for their lives, Lord, created in your image um, with good works prepared. And thank you, Lord. And just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.